Welcome to the History of Pelescia one-on-one sessions, um, Junior Francis. Now, this series celebrates Southern California's care, rocksteady, and vintage reggae scene through insightful conversations with legends and modern day players, including those behind the scenes, and they are very important. This is the 20th one-on-one sessions and our fifth in this exciting new podcast YouTube channel. Thanks to the regular supporters, thanks to first timers, and welcome to just about everyone who is viewing and listening. Today's guest is veteran, singer, guitarist, frontman of the Toasters and record label guru, Rob, known affectionately as Bucket, his parents christened him Rob Hinckley. How are you, Rob? <laughs> Hello, Junior. Welcome, good vibes from Texas to the West Coast, man. Yes, hey, indeed. Hey, <laughs> Welcome and congratulations, man. As the Toasters, yeah. you'll be celebrating your 40th anniversary this year. If I'm not well, mistaken, you have 10 studio albums plus numerous live albums and compilations under your belt. Such a huge accomplishment. Wow. Yeah, well, it's been a lot of work, but uh, we've, been, we've been thrown off the, the track this last year by COVID. So the uh, celebration we're supposed to have in in 2020 is going to happen now in 2021 and 2022 so we've been we've been thrown off the track by by a virus yes yeah so so is is this uh the longest you've gone out without touring since the uh, band came together and well, you started well, almost there was um just 14 uh, months approximately 14 months since you've been locked yeah out. it's uh the second longest time that uh, and it's a bad memory was um I had to come off the road when we were closing up Moon Records in 2000. So I had mm-hmm. to deal with the receivership and deal with those lawyers and all that stuff. So that took me off the road for a while and that was painful. But this one seems to hurt a little bit more because um, it's, uh, you know, we, we, we get so many communications from the fans who are like hurting for some good music to come back around. So I'm hoping now finally that if our governments and politicians can get their shit together, we can get back out on the road in, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yes. It's been difficult, Jenny, yeah. I, I know, I know. So tell us about some of the adjustments that you had to make off the road uh, over the past 14 months. Well, I had to uh, I had to adjust to being at home. And uh, I don't like that. And my wife, certainly after a while, my wife certainly didn't like it. She says, she says to me, when, you, when are you going to go back out on the road? And, so, well, <laughs> and uh, I say, well, as a matter of fact, uh, to be honest, I, I, I can't say. So I've been good. I, I painted the fence. I put in the vegetable garden. I did everything up nice around the house. I've been working mm-hmm. hard. But I'm looking forward to coming back and playing some shows. Yep. And in fact, the next big tour we have is heading out your way to California. Mm-hmm. We flipped the script a little bit. And normally we come out your way in uh, January, February time. But now we're coming November, December. So that's going to be a little Thanksgiving present not only for me but also for you yes so you have um you've been booked in numerous venues around southern california yep that's it the i think the tour dates are just announced now so Uh, are you at liberty to tell us where you'll be playing well pretty much everywhere from san diego (laughs) all the way up to portland and back Uh yeah nice nice Mm -hmm. but i want before we move on are you now living in texas uh right yeah, it's a, uh-huh. you know, don't ask me how it happened, but here I am all of a sudden. I, I, I had been I had been living in Spain for 11 years, um, but we had um, 
had a little bit of an issue with one of the younger kids uh, with the development. And uh, so we had to come back to America to get her back into school. And somehow the dart landed in the dartboard of San Antonio, Texas. And as it happens, it was not a bad cast. It's, it's a pretty good place here. It's um, a lot of people think, well, Texas, what's up with that? But here it's a very multicultural city. Uh, of course, a huge Mexican influence, but a lot of also uh, ethnic groups here. So I'm having a great time in San Antonio, mm -hmm. reinventing some NYC scar to yeah, some Texas, Texas scar. Because when I think of uh, Texas, I think of a place I fly over if I'm going to Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, throw, throw, throw me out a beef patty when you come over, please. <laughs> All right. Sir. Yeah. So when you, when you reach San Antonio, toss the beef patty, I'll, I'll be looking to catch it. There you go, sir. So uh, you mentioned beef patty. So where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in England. In uh, Weymouth, I, I mean, I know, for, but I'm asking for the benefit of all this. In, in 1955. Uh -huh. where like, you didn't say, did you say exactly in, where? In, in Weymouth, Dorset. In all England. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And I think your father was in the British Army. So yeah, he, uh, yeah, by was. default, you traveled extensively around the world, right? Well, I mean, around uh, the world, multiple places. Yeah, I mean, uh, by the time I was 10 years old, I'd already... I mean, I was born in England, but I'd lived in Germany two times. I lived in France. I'd lived in Cyprus. And more importantly, I ended up in uh, Nairobi, East Africa, where I lived until 1964, mm -hmm. which is when they achieved their uh, appendence, which they call Uhuru, which is the Swahili word for Uhuru. And then we had to come home in a hurry because uh, the African guys, they weren't too happy about the British troops. But uh, being all around the world, and especially there at that time, I, mean, I speak Swahili, num number one, but uh, I was able to listen to some great local bands, uh, a lot of the African ja so-called jazz bands playing like pretty much, you know, Afro-mix jazz music in 1962, interesting mm -hmm. stuff. So, of course, when I got back to England in 1964, first thing I hear on the radio apart from Rolling Stones, Beatles, all this stuff, I hear this artist they call Millie Small. I said, was I thinking that was what? I, I, yeah. I, I was thinking. And I'm 64. like, what the heck is this? My boy Lollipop, they said, yes. well, I've got a... So I went right out and bought that record. Uh, it was just on vinyl, like a seven-inch vinyl, thick as a, thick as a dinner plate, and I still have it. And so that's how I got in the sky right there coming out of those African vibes I was brought up in, back mm. into England, Rolling Stones, yeah, Beatles, yeah, Millie Smalls, let's buy that. Mm. And so that's where I discovered scam music right there. I was nine years old at that time. So fortunately for you, having lived around the world, you were exposed to multiple genres of music at a very yeah. young age. Yep. Mm -hmm. Nice. Like way, way more than I would have been yes, stuck sir. in some... Stuck yes. in, mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, England was maybe a little bit more ahead, but I mean, England at that time was, I would say, way ahead, yeah, very close up place. But I mean, uh, you know, people like uh, Chris Blackwell and Laura Lakin had brought ska music to England as early as 1962. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, as, as, as much as people want to slag off Chris Blackwell without him. Scam music would not have continued because it, it kind of 
it kind of tailed off in Jamaica, but by Chris Blackwell introducing his artists into England and, and having huge hits for them mm -hmm. in the early 60s in the UK. That's where we all got into Sky mm -hmm. in England, listening right. to those artists. Mm -hmm. And then tailing into Laurel Aitken, of course, he was a the trendsetter. But then, um, you know, uh, the upsetters and uh, all those great artists who, who segued into the Trojan music explosion in the late 60s. It was a seminal time for reggae in England, mm -hmm. 62 to 67. Yes, indeed. Indeed, indeed. The, the Trojan explosion is what we called it. Yes. You've probably heard of that now. Yes, and I'm aware of it, having been to London a few times, and perhaps I have a massive collection of uh, Trojan records by default because yeah. that's where all the songs are. We They made well, them in Jamaica and just send them off to England and the Trojan mm. label. There you go. So if I want them, I have to buy them, whether I like Trojan or not. <laughs> yeah, so when did you start singing and playing the guitar, Rob? Back well, not, not till a lot later. I mean I, I mean, I have to confess that when I came back to England, my, my aunt bought me a little plastic Beatles guitar with four strings on it. So my first experience of playing the guitar was on this little plastic Beatles guitar in 1965. But it, that didn't go serious. And I didn't really start singing and playing guitar until I was uh, uh, 16 years old in high school doing my final exams, mm -hmm. which would, would have been like, what, like 19, like 19, 1970, I guess. So it was kind of late. So the guitar playing came late, but the listening came early. And of course, at that time, I was in the pocket for a scar and reggae music happening around there. Uh, one of the biggest releases for me, a big ear opener, uh, was the, um, the the soundtrack for uh, How Do They Come. Yes, sir. We took reggae around the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people ask me, well, you know, if, I'm, if you're going to be talking to somebody and, and recommend one record that would be instrumental in somebody understanding what the genre is, mm -hmm. I would take a step back from two-tone. I would take a step back from everything and I'd say, listen to that, the, the soundtrack for The Harder They Come, mm -hmm. which is where artists like Jimmy Cliff, great Jimmy Cliff, was cut spotted into fame with that. But that soundtrack on it is everybody you need to know from this, the springboard of reggae music into what, what is modern ska. And the biggest name, of course, on that roster, on that list, would be Toots and the Matals. Mm -hmm. And the one song, if I had to define all of it, what is the root? I would say Funky Kingston. I would select that track. Is it on that soundtrack? I can't remember. I don't think well, it's on I, that I'm particular not, soundtrack. I'm not sure if that particular song is. But yes, uh, and said no. Uh, -uh that, yeah. that was a later recording. Mm. That was a later recording. Mm -hmm. But I would say that there's there's the pocket right there. Yes, sir. I, I definitely second that. So mm. New York now. So from England to New York. When did you relocate? Well, I went to New York in uh, 1980. What was the occasion? Visit or live? And uh, I was at that time. I was I had been working in uh, in London 
for a science fiction and comic book store called Forbidden Planet. Mm-hmm. And they were big in England at that time. They'd opened a shop in New York and they'd said, can you, can you go over there and help them out? Because the people there need a little bit of guidance in what they're doing, which really meant they wanted me to go there, fire them all and hire new people. So I tried to make that <laughs> as easy on people as we could, but you know how that works. Right. And so here I am, I find myself in New York City in 1980, which is a fantastic place, like live, like having live electricity, like pumped onto your, your body. It's like, wow, what a, what a great place this is, everything going on. And I was living on the Lower East Side at that time, which was like punk rock city. So that was like, you know, very cutting edge societal evolution there. And so I get there in 1980 and I'm like, you know, first the boss says, well, you're going to be here for, you're going to be here for three months. So, okay. And then he says, oh, you're going to be here for six months. I was like, man, well, I need to find something to do. What am I going to do? Like, let me, let me get together a jam band with some of the guys here working at the place who are all musicians into this. Let's get a jam band together so we have something, something to do in the evening. So when I go home, we can, you know, jam some music, drink some beers, do what we're doing. And they say, well, what music are we going to play? I said, well, we're going to play scam music. And they're like, well, what is that? As they do. <laughs> you know, here we are, New York City, 1980. And they're like, what is scam music? I said, what? Having just come from England, where two tone with uh, 1979 with gangsters had been the number one hit. So two tone music at that time in England was was at the top. And I'm saying to these guys, have you have you heard of these bands like the Specials and Madness and Selector, the best two tone band, Selector or the the Beat? And they're like, no. I'm like, I'm like, okay. Well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start this band. I'm gonna teach you guys how to play scammers. And it's not one. It's not one and three. It's two and four. You know. It's, you know. So you got to change it. You got to change your beat round. And so trying to get these guys to play that was a little difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. And then we go to see. I take these guys. Uh, at that at that point, the band was not called the Toast. It was called. It was called uh, Not Bob Marley at mm-hmm. this point. <laughs> and so I said, "Come on, we're gonna." The beat, the beat, or in in America we say the English beat because it's whatever. <clears throat> so we go to uh, the Roseland Ballroom, and we watch this band, and they're all blown away. And we meet up with Dave Wakeling after the show, and I say, "What a big fan!" He's, uh, you know, you're welcome. And so that's when we decided to start the Toasters and have a full-on ska music band. So mm-hmm. it was like that music, like that moment in the Blues Brothers, you know, where they go to see the Penguin and light shines down and he says, oh, yeah, this is what we're going to do. It was mm-hmm. that. It was that moment. <clears throat> but, you know, uh, Bucket, yeah. uh, I, I was living in New York at that time and there was no scare on the radio. I remember one DJ, Jeff Barnes, would in frequently on Saturday mornings mixing some oldies. But so I don't necessarily fault anyone in New York at that time for not knowing much about scare R2 Tom. And then I remember when Nelson Mandela, was it the who made the song? There's Free Nelson Mandela. Um, that was Nelson, a, uh, um, it was um, especially AKM. Yeah, right. So that's that's when I really, you know, uh, yeah, heard two tone 
in his yeah, true wrote, sense wrote and decided to a, pay more attention to the music. But in New York, great, there was more Sky Rock Steady. Yes, sir, that's the one. There you go, man. Uh, what, what, a, what a great hit. Yeah, it was, yes, with, uh, uh-huh. it was a special AKA with Rhoda Dakar singing from The Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a fantastic lady. What a fantastic lady she is. And um, yeah, so I think um, I was in that same position in, on the Lurie side in 1980, where all around I looked was these prominent punk rock musicians everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, where I lived on uh, on uh, 8th Street and Avenue A, or 8th Street and Avenue B, which was at that time in, in the ghetto in the hood, people say, why do you, why do you want to go live over there? I said, dude, I, ju- I just been living in Brixton. This this is no, <laughs> no, this, is no this is no fright right. to me. <laughs> nothing, nothing these nothing these guys have is any worse than those yardies down there that live next door to me. And so uh, I went there and I'm on the bar stools next to me, <clears throat> and this classic bar called the Park Inn Tavern, which is like this little watering hole, and it was full of uh, New York City hardcore guys there. Uh, from bands like the Cro-Mags and Murphy's Law there. But at the same time, I was I would go have a beer with Wayne Kramer from the MC5, who was who was there, and the guys from Ivan Julian and uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, all these like punk rock guys. So it was like a it was a hot spot for music cooking. Oh there. yes, oh yeah. yes. <laughs> and and uh, you know, most of it and a lot of it coming out was this like, you know, NYC's punk glam scene but at the same time all the hardcore guys uh chromags and uh we were rehearsing in a studio at 171 avenue a uh, just up the road from there and we were there and at the same time was the bad brains rehearsing there uh the chromags rehearsing there and and the toasters and murphy's law said this whole big mix of stuff going on and out of that, we springboarded ska music with our first gig uh, at the uh, at uh, the 7A Club in 1982. was mm. our first gig. And very shortly after, we were able to get a into get a get a uh, a showcase at CBGB, where Hilly Crystal liked us so much. He said, "Well, I'm going to put you on the weekend," and that went so well. That he said, "I'm going to give you a residency so you can." You can have oh. one night a month to book yourself. And so we turned that into the Sky Night. And so by 84, we we're able to, you know, have a whole New York City Sky scene going on. Right, right. Congratulations, man. Congratulations. Yeah. And I wanted to um for the benefit of the original members, who were they, sir? Uh, the toasters. Well, the original members uh, in 1982, one of them was my roommate who uh, when I first moved in to New York City, my roommate played piano, said, okay, you're going to be in the band. So he got co-opted. You ever see that that movie, The Commitments? No, I mostly watch reggae movie. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to watch this movie called The Commitments, yeah. an Alan Parker movie about guys in Belfast who join a band and they, <clears throat> they take anybody who can play and put them together into units. So you got to watch that. But, but um. It was some guys from Forbidden Planet, Garrick, and who was uh, playing the congas. And then uh, a couple of guys in the bar, Teddy McSpade on guitar and uh, Vicky Rose on bass, who was a bartender. 
And so we started this band from nothing. People didn't know nothing about ska music and turned it into this successful ska machine over the course of a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, so I, had to teach, I had to teach these guys everything. Yeah, they, right. didn't, so, they didn't know anybody. So essentially, you would say there was relatively no ska scene in the United States at that time, no, like early No, 80s. nothing. Zero. Nothing. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So that vision came from you being around the world and more specifically England, where the ska scene was vibrant. Yeah, well, well, the, well, the same as Laurel Aitken with, uh, with the air ticket from Chris Blackwell took Sky Music to England in his back pocket in 1962. But he had no other choice. He had no, what was, yeah. what was he going to play? Well, yeah, but, but in, England, in, in England at that time, there was a huge Jamaican population. Right. Because after the war, you know, after World War I and World War II, the, the English Queen had killed so many of her own people. They didn't have enough people to work. So they they said, let's bring some Jamaican guys in. Uh, Windrush. They call them the Windrush, I think. Yeah, the Windrush, wind rush, yeah. Mm. And and look what happened there. It was big disrespect, that. Uh, but they brought everybody in to work. And on the back of that, along with the Jamaican workers and their families, came the culture, came the mm-hmm. food, mm-hmm. came the music. Mm-hmm. And so that's how... The, the sky music arrived into England right. is because originally there was the audience of Jamaican people mm-hmm. who wanted to see these core Jamaican artists like mm-hmm. Laurel Aitken right. or Millie Smalls. Owen Gray. Come, yeah, yeah, come, come mm-hmm. in to sing for them in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but because the audience was there built in with the Jamaican and West Indian Trinidadian workers had been bought there right. in the 50s. So that formed the basis for these artists to be able to come first to, to entertain them and then interface with a wider English mm-hmm. white audience. And that's how the Sky infiltrated into the UK. Yes, sir. And I, I should also mention Rico. He came in 1960-61. So he was part of that early Windrush generation. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Rico, that great Rico. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, producer and singer Joe Jackson, your relationship with him and what <laughs> role he played in your growth and development. Well, uh, first of all, I was a big fan of his. You know, I thought his uh, Look Sharp album in, uh, in, the, in the 70s was maybe one of the best albums of that particular era um, alongside Elvis Costello, mm-hmm. My Aim is True, that record. And uh, who was the other guy? I was from that time, I would have said Ian Dury and the Blockheads, these mm-hmm. bands. So these were like different aspects of English cultural pop. But Joe Jackson had something, and I was lucky enough to, uh, to meet up with him a couple of times. And, and here's the interesting cross-section as I was working in Forbidden Planet to be able to come to work in London and work in, in, uh, in the USA, I had met Joe Jackson in London. And I was the guy who was in charge of finding him. He's a big comic book collector. Mm-hmm. So I was the guy at Forbidden Planet who was buying his old comic books for him. So I met him in in London in 1979. 
And then I moved to USA in 1980, and so did he. So one day, I'm working in Forbidden Planet in New York, in walks Joe Jackson. Wow, what I'm a saying, coincidence. I'm saying, he's saying, what are you doing here? Yeah. Here's what it is. So uh, he and I would just go out once a week and have a beer and talk shit on politicians or discuss politics, you know, you know, that's mostly negative. <laughs> and, uh, and then when the band got going, he was a big supporter mm. and uh, he helped us uh, produce some records, came and played some live shows with CBGB's, appeared on stage at mm. CBGB's and was a big promoter for the band. And he ended up producing the uh, 1985 Recombination CP, which is our breakout release, uh, the same year as Fishbone put out Party uh, at Grand Zero. So 1985 was the groundbreaking of scam music in the mm. USA on East and West, I would say. Right. And and from that point, um, you know, I've been friends with him ever since, and he's produced quite a few more records for us. Wonderful. I, yeah. I want to... Yes, sir. I want to ask you about the formation or birth of um, Moon Records. But before, let me remind the listeners that I'm in conversation with um, veteran singer, guitarist, frontman of the Toasters and record label guru, Rob, known uh, affectionately worldwide as Bucket. But, you know, his parents register him, Rob Hengley. Is Rob, Rob is usually short for Robert, right? Uh, in, is that the case in your case, Robert? Well, my your... real name is Robert, but the only people who call me Robert mm. is my grandmother, who's dead now, and my yes. wife when she's mad at me. But everybody else calls me Bucket. Yes, I'm big, right. <laughs> all right, good. <laughs> so we stick with it. Again, Bucket, yeah, mind. So let's start uh, with uh, Moon Records, how it came into existence. I know you were instrumental, as a matter of fact, the founder, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Now, well, what, what happened there was um, as the Tosas were gathering some steam in uh, 1982, 1983, right. we saw a need to, you know, we had a demo of tunes and uh, I put that tape in my pocket and I went around all the record labels in New York and knocked on the doors and all the music publications such as the, the Village Voice, which at that time was maybe the most influential music critic mm -hmm. magazine in New York. They were fairly progressive too, right? Yeah, and very progressive. And uh, the, the man named there was Robert Criscow, who was like maybe the number one music critic in New York. And I played him on tape and he said, I'll never review a Tosis record. He said, you guys are nothing but a bar band. Wow. And I'll never review your records. I say, okay, well, here we go. That was a and low so, blow. Well, it's a low blow. But it's, okay, well, I'm sorry you don't like it, you know, but let's move on. So now I take the tape and I go around all, all the all the labels in New York. At that point, every every label was in New York at that point, not LA. It's before the music mm -hmm. business moved there, and nobody would review the record. And uh, one guy said to me, "What did he say?" He said, "Ah." Uh, I'll never review that record. It's circus music. He said, you're never going to get anywhere playing that music. It's circus music. And now I think, well, you know, does he still have his job? He probably doesn't. So anyway, so right from the get-go, it became obvious that, like, you know, scam music, you know, 
people treated it like a joke. They said, what is this? Right. No, nobody got it. Nobody understood it. Mm-hmm. No, nobody, nobody got the whole socio-political sense of it or the fact that it was like a you know transactional music that involved not just white people or, or black people, it's like everybody. This it was before reggae happened, you know. Mm-hmm. So people didn't get it. It's like, and so I thought, wow, if if um if anything's gonna happen, we're gonna have to do it ourselves. Yes, sir. and so that's what we did. Nice. We started small, we released a single, mm-hmm. we played a lot of shows, got signed to a good booking agent, played a thousand around the USA, and just built it up step by step myself mm-hmm. in spite of what the industry said <clears throat> the industry said oh you're not never going to make it mm-hmm. and look what happened i tell you and what i'm to those guys now hope they have jobs <laughs> yeah. so you have described the new york's casino uh let's talk a little bit about the concert documentary from 1990 uh you, you you're familiar with that which one is that uh, I think it's called the New York Scarecrow's Concert. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that was uh, 1988. 88. That came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened there was uh, that on one level, it was a misfire because we'd hooked up with the guy, I'm trying to recall his name now, uh, Joe, whatever it says. It's the guy who'd filmed the Scarecrow's documentary. Okay. It was so successful with Two Tone back mm-hmm. in the day. I had to search for his name. But anyway, the guy who um, directed that was in New York and I met him. And uh, I said, well, what do you think about doing the same thing for what's happening now with the New York City scar scene, which back then was in full flow because we'd had the 1986 release of the uh, New New York Beat Hit and Run compilation which was like the first nationally distributed sky record in the USA. And, uh, and so we, were all, we had it all planned to, we rented a place called the Cat Club, which is a big venue. And uh, Joe Massett, that was his name was. And uh, I hired a, a sound truck, a 48 track mixing truck to sit outside so we could record the show to the recording truck outside and get a mix. And then he was going to come and video it. But as it happened on the night, he was a no-show, he, he flicked that. And so then I said, well, I may as well put this record out. And that's what it was. But it was supposed to be the soundtrack to the mm-hmm. New York City version of Scarecrow's 1988. And uh, just ended up being a somewhat obscure live album, which was a great documentary piece of what was happening in New York City in 1988, but not not quite as good as it could have been. Right. Now, this Scarecrow tour, was that in 1993? And how did that come about? Yeah, that was, uh, what a tour that was. Um, Go into details. I I, I looked to see, I looked at that as, well, a lot of people want to pinpoint what was the, what was the time, what was the price, precise time that sky music blew up mm-hmm. in the United States. And a lot of people want to look at some of these bands that came after in the late 90s, uh, like No Doubt 
or whomever who are who I have no problem with who are great bands in their own right. Mm -hmm. But I think when we did the Scavuvi tour in 1993, um, that was a collaboration between myself and a couple of booking agents I was working at, and a guy in New York City uh, who had a club called uh, Sounds of Brazil, SOBs. His name was Larry Gold. And, mm -hmm. and he would he would bring in a lot of uh, Latin American bands. Uh, That's where the Scatlights would play on a regular basis. And uh, it was a, like a nice venue. A lot of the big reggae artists would play there. And he believed in the project. He said, you know what, I'm going to give you... He said, I, I don't know shit about ska music yeah. so much. <laughs> I mean, I like, this, I like when you play here. I like when the Scatlights play here but I'm going to give you the money oh, good. To, to bankroll whatever you need to do to make a big ska music tour happen in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so he was a financial backer. And, uh, and so with his, with his cash, we were able to put together a tour uh, with three tour buses. And on those three tour buses was the Toasters, the selector, uh, the scatterlights, and the special beat. And by the special beat, I'm saying that was a, a super group uh, of guys from the specials mm -hmm. and from the beat and a couple of <clears throat> other guys. And mm -hmm. so that would have been uh, Neville Staple, would have mm -hmm. been Rankin Big Roger. Name. It would have been, uh, uh, it would, it would have been, uh, Linval from mm -hmm. the specials would have been Brad from the specials and Horace from the specials and, and two other guys, uh, a guy called Finney from the loafers in the UK and a guy called Sean Flowerdew, Sean Flowerdew, who was uh, mm -hmm. also <clears throat> in the loafers. So that was a composite band. So here's the, the four band um, tour that was sent out mm -hmm. around 50 dates in the US. Wow. So, yeah, so it's 50, that, 50 day tour. That was and really historic because it, I think it was the first time that uh, all three waves came together with the Scatterlights, Founding Fathers, Special Beat, and Selectors, right? Yeah, absolutely. All, first time. Yeah, it's the first in, time. In the history of the United States. Uh, and so, in order to get people to understand the compatibility of that on one level, uh, the contiguity of that, and the spatio-temporal effect of that on one level, to have this package of bands that was like celebrating 50 years of music together on one stage. And a lot of people were skeptical of and it was big risk, but it was a huge hit. And it was, one of the, it was one of the top 50 grossing tours from uh, Billboard magazine and from you know, for that year. So it was a huge, huge, huge successful tour. Wow. And a lot of people said to me afterwards, like, wow, what, how do you manage to put that tour together? I said, well, I said, like with a lot of trust and a lot of luck and somebody else's money. But right. it was uh, mm -hmm. so the key was the, the key was to find a, a financial backer, the yeah, SOB guy. Yeah, the idea was there. But Larry Gold from SAB was the guy who said, I believe in Larry it. Larry Gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Larry Gold. I believe in it. I, and I'm, I'll, put the, wow. I'll put the money down to <clears throat> underpin the tour. 
and what a massive success. And it's congratulations to him. Yeah. Congratulations to Larry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I want to talk to you about the Scatalites. Uh, I know you did work with Lester Sterling in some, on some level, I think in 1996, the Toasters uh, did a tour with him and then you work with him as an individual. What was that like, sir? Share some mm. memory. Well, uh, I mean, uh, one of the good, good things about the Sky Booby tour was uh, on our tour bus, they had to split the scatolites up because they were fighting, you see. And so, and so <laughs> the and ultimate so, warriors. Well, you know how you Jamaican guys are. I, and, so, I... <laughs> and so some of them, some of them had to go on this one bus, and some of them had to go on the other bus. So on the one bus with us was uh, was uh, was Lloyd Brevet, yeah, yeah. what a character. And we had Roland Alfonso, and we had uh, and we had uh, Lester on our bus, and one of the other guys, I think maybe, who was Trumpet at that point? Maybe Nathan Breedlove, maybe, I want to say was playing Trumpet. And on the other bus was uh, was was Nib and, uh, and, uh, and um, Tommy McCook mm -hmm. on the other bus. And so we were on a bus with these guys traveling around, and we would like, you know, we, we would take them into the diners and order their food because these guys, you know, didn't really know how to go to Denny's at night and order, like, late night breakfast. And uh, Lester was a great guy. Mm -hmm. And night after night after night with him, we'd hang out and I'd get these fantastic stories. And it became clear to me, as like, man, if out of, out of all these guys, if anybody going back in time... He had to say, it's like, who is the key man for Sky Music? It has to be Lester Sterling. Not only, you know, he got denied in the Scatlights, I think, which is maybe a controversial point, but we can talk about that. But he was uh, he was the musical director for Prince Buster. Yes. For that. He was the musical director for Byron Lee, mm -hmm. playing trumpet at the time, which was his main instrument, which he learned in the <coughs> army, he said. And so, um, you know, we hit it off. And so after that, uh, we took Lester on tour a little bit and he played on uh, the Dub 56 album, he guesses on this, and the uh, Hard Band for Dead album, he guessed on that. So Lester Sterling, what a, what a gem, yeah. fantastic yeah. gentleman. Very, uh, full of humility too. Some of the yeah. names you mentioned were not very yeah. humble. Not very yeah, very humble. I mean, never, never made a claim to anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of guys, as you know, as well as I do in ska music and rain music, there's a lot of guys who want to say they originated it. And yeah. in fact, there's, there's, <clears throat> there's so many originators, it's not physically possible. It can't be all of them. It can't be all of them. Right. <laughs> but, I, but I think the original originator, the, the real originators are people like Lester Sterling, mm -hmm. who created the music, and who was the band leader for so, so many influential bands back in the time? Mm -hmm. I never made a claim. Never made a claim. <clears throat> right. Very humble, very humble man. So mm -hmm. I, I love Lester. I love Lester. Right. And some of the other guys who were, I guess, uh, more upscale in their thinking, more Elizabethan thinking, didn't want to identify with Skia back in those days. Yeah, maybe not. They called I mean, themselves jazz men <laughs> until Skia took off. Now they said, hold on, we're part of this too. <laughs> Well, that's what uh, that's what happens. And one of the controversial things about ska music is when um, 
you have a lot of people coming in, and I'm on controversial ground here. A lot of guys coming in making a claim to say, well, we're the guys originating this music. A lot of them didn't really show up in Jamaica mm -hmm. until after the fact because they'd been like Tommy McCook, for example, great musician, mm -hmm. but he was up in the Bahamas. Bahamas. Yeah, mm -hmm. playing. And so he didn't really show up till then. So right. I think Tommy was a good organizer, mm -hmm. but he wasn't really one of the guys who was in there on right. the ground. So I'd say a guy like Lester, who was mm -hmm. maybe not the great organizational genius, but right. musically maybe the mm -hmm. best guy. And I'll point to a fact. If you, <clears throat> let me make a point. If you look at uh, this guy, Richard Branson, uh, not Richard Branson, um, talking about the wrong guy, the space guy, the, the guy who, um, from Island, Ruse, Island, Island Records. Chris Blackwell? Yeah, Chris Blackwell. He, uh, his family is the one who made all that pickle. So, mm -hmm. so you know, so um, he said there was a, a seminal record that came out, the, the, the history of Jamaican music. Uh, it was a four CD set. And Chris Blackwell said the only person in the scatellites he mentioned was <clears throat> Lester Sterling. Mm -hmm. And he... He mentioned him as as the the great Lester Sterling. So I think Lester Sterling is a guy who should really get his due. Right, and hasn't. But yeah. uh, my from the readings I've done and my own understanding, when Tommy came back to um, Jamaica from the Bahamas, by then uh, Cox and Dad wanted to start, you know, wanted to start a band, hmm. and so he you know, invited several people, but they, I guess, for whatever reason, they didn't. So he asked Tommy twice. And on Tommy, me and Tommy McCook, when Tommy was leaving, he, he played a song for him by Dan Drummond, Schooling the Duke. And I think this is the most accurate start of the Scatterlights and really when Scat came into full formation. And so his, Tommy said to him, oh, you, McCook said, you, who, is this, who is this guy here? It's a now, Dan Drummond. So where is he what, from? Jamaica. What, what year said, would Let's you get say the that? band together. What huh? year would you say that was? So Studio One opened 63. So I guess it's on or about that time. Hmm. Right, because Coxon wanted a, a house band, a studio band. But yeah. Dan didn't have the ability to start a band because he had mental issues. And yeah, so yeah. He, uh, Tommy was highly organized, but uh, he's a, I, he said it repeatedly, I'm a jazz man. But when he well, heard Dan Drummond at the bone, he said, um, le um, let's start the scatlight. Let's start. Yeah, well, I think Tommy, Tommy had had a lot of uh, experience putting bands together. In the Bahamas. Uh, for, yeah, and in the Bahamas. And it was mostly for like casino gigs. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so I think he was an organizational guy, but maybe not necessarily the, the best musician and maybe not necessarily the, the, the most talented Scar musician. And I would have said, you know, Don Drummond would have been number one, but he was a little incapacitated. And of course he died in uh, Bellevue Hospital in New York, unfortunately. But I think um, Lester Sterling was the guy who was, for me, was a, a linchpin of all of that. Because he would, he had, you know, he'd learned to play trumpet in the army, you know, mm -hmm. and so his main instrument was trumpet. And when he started playing with uh, Byron Lee, mm -hmm. he was on trumpet. And at that point he was already the, 
the musical director of the Byron Lee Band, which was the most su successful commercial band that Jamaica ever had up until maybe Bob Marley or beyond, you know. Byron Lee was a hugely successful band and that was the interface. A lot of people don't want to say it because they look back at him and say, he was Jesus, yeah, dude, but he was there. And what he was doing, it was he was providing interface between Jamaican music, whether it was, you know, Calypso or whether it was uh, Mento or whether it was Sky Music mm -hmm. to the American tourists who were coming, which was the money which was the money, the economy that was fueling these Jamaican bands. And I've had the same <clears throat> thing said to me by uh, this guy. I don't know if you know this guy. Uh, um, what's his name now? I'm looking for his name. But these are guys who were like uh, singing at the Glass Slip Club alongside Laurel Aitken. And uh, they're saying that a lot, a lot of the money coming in was from the American tourists fuel in it. But I, I think, uh, you know, going back to it, I mean, Lord, I mean, uh, I just have to say that Lester is a very, very important guy. Very important. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And not, uh, you know, they call him Lester Skia Sterling. Definitely not credited. But I think... Um, the guy I was talking about. His, I think his, posterity and history will remember Dan Drummond yeah. as uh, we we could go back and forth on this until eternity. But I think posterity and history will remember Dan Drummond as being miles ahead of all the musicians, not only in Jamaica but perhaps in the entire Caribbean. As a matter of fact, there was a British singer, art, a British writer who wrote that Dan Drummond was among the four greatest trombone trombone players, and that's his opinion. Walking well, planet was, Earth. I mean, he was. Yeah. There was no doubt that he was the. The Miles Davis of, of and, Jamaica. And after yeah. he died, Scatterlight yeah. said, we can't hold it together without him. In, in, in uh, as yeah. much as he was not the leader. <laughs> and so and so uh, they needed somebody who was maybe not the musical guru that they'd lost, but an organizational guru, or some uh, like a man like Tommy McCook, who come in and say, okay, well, here's how we're going to reform the band, and we're going to do this in a in a commercial sense. So I think Tommy McCook, great guy, great player, um, and he knew how to organize the band commercially, but I think the spirit of ska music after after uh, Don Drummond was was less the third. All right, I give it that. Did you see what I'm saying? Uh -huh. Right. Um, well, that, that's that's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, yeah. after 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 Dan Drummond died, I think Tommy McCook. I uh, sorry, um, Jackie Mito will step up from behind the shadows yeah, of yeah. all the horns players, and mm. uh, we, you know, the rest is history. You know what he did at Studio One. As a matter of fact, some historians are referring to him now as Jamaica's single greatest musical arranger. Yeah, that's pretty uh, right. Uh, but I mean, you know, when I listen to a record. There's very few artists you can listen to when you listen to a recording, and you immediately who that know who that is. Lester, and, right. and when Lester plays, <laughs> yes, I agree. Is it? Oh, that's mm -hmm. Lester because mm -hmm. that, that's his sound. Lester mm -hmm. had a sound. Yes. Mm -hmm. And first he had a sound of the trumpet, mm -hmm. and then he had a sound. Then, so right. whatever. So um, mm -hmm. but anyway, just to recircle back to what we're talking about about the Scavuvi tour, what a fantastic opportunity that was to take all the generations act every mm -hmm. night 
and right. it was fifty. That was fifty dates. So that was a heavy duty, heavy duty tour yeah, over, mm-hmm. you know, over like eight weeks, mm-hmm. eight week tour. And did you guys and go was, from coast to coast? Yeah, everywhere, and and including Canada. You know, we had an interesting issue when we went across the border into Canada, and uh, and uh, they were looking for the weed. <laughs> 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 I won't mention Lloyd Brevet, but uh, he was the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Original Rasta man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was, From Warwick what a, Hill. <laughs> what, what a character. But, uh, but I think you're right to pinpoint that. Mm-hmm. The Scavubi tour was really the springboard for scam music, all the scam music that had gone before, mm-hmm. springboarding into what was going to happen in the 90s. Mm-hmm. with a whole diaspora of, of different tastes and what happened with Sky Music after that, where it went off into these strange places. But the mm-hmm. Sky Movie Tour, man, I, I do that I do that again tomorrow, if you ask me. Oh, of course, of course, of course, of course. Yes, sir. That's about want, the most fun, mm-hmm. most fun I've ever had in my life. Uh-huh. I want to but segue I'm, into... But I'm uh, glad I wasn't a tour manager. <laughs> I can imagine, boy. <laughs> so the tours, the tours were part of the Scare Against Racism tour. How important is it to help educate and enlighten people as you travel across uh, the country? Well, I mean, uh, you know, growing up in England, mm-hmm. Racism wasn't a big concern until I moved to the USA. And unfortunately here, I have to say, I mean, I've lived in this country now for, what is it, like 40 years, and I still can't get over the, the racist part. And I said, like, man, if you want to consider yourself the most advanced <coughs> societal evolution, you have to come to terms with this. And you have to come to terms with the history and admit that, yeah, we did that. And fess up and say, yeah, we're gonna try and make a bit of it. Somehow here that that can't happen. And I remember, um, you know, we participated in uh, the Sky Against Racism tour in 1998 with uh, Lesson Jake and uh, Mike Park and uh, these other bands. And I thought, wow, is that how how is it really necessary? at this point in time to have to organize a tour like this to advertise to people this is not cool, you know, and that was 30 years ago and it's, and it's still going on. I mean, I remember um, playing shows in Florida, for example, in the early 90s and uh, in Gainesville, Florida, which is a big university down. And at that time we had a our roadies and security were some guys from the sharp skinheads against racial prejudice guys. And one of them comes up, we're getting ready to go on. He says, he says, boss, there's some trouble outside. Can you come out? I said, all right, let's go see. And so I walk outside and here's our, our, here's our security crew. And then here's a bunch of guys with these, you know, Nazi armbands, skinhead guys. And they say, well, you know, we want to come in to see the show. I said, well, how's that going to be possible if you're wearing this stuff? I said, oh, we'll take this off. And he said, well, you know, we're really big fans. We like the music. Wow. We just want to come <clears throat> see see the show. I said, and I turned around to, uh, that, at that point, uh, uh, Cashew Miles is in the band and said, well, 
you want to you want to pay money to see the black man sing? I mean, how how does this work with your resource? I said, yeah, we're we're big friends, big fans. And the other guy said, yeah, we're not we're not racist. We're just bigots. And at that point, I really said, dude, That's a you guys, <laughs> yeah, you guys are just you guys are just stupid. You've been fed this disinformation by somebody. Whoever told you this stuff is like, we need to get to them. But it's like, man, these people want to be cool, but they can't be because they have indoctrination from their parents or from their mm. school or from their Society. politicians or, mm. or whatever. It's like, yeah, fantastic. And that stuff's still there, Junior. Don't... So did you let those guys in? I'm curious to hear the end. Yeah. Did, did you guys, you let them in? We let them in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the bouncers at the show, these big local, local guys, big brothers, I said, dude, if you... If these guys are missing, hey, please school them in the areas of the ways. And they were like, well, we're ready, we're ready. So they came in, they liked the, the show, went back outside, put their Nazi back on, and off they went. So, but there's hope that there's hope there, <clears throat> see. Yeah, on some, yeah. le- on some yeah. level, these people get. Yeah, you know, I heard that Bob Marley had a similar example in England that where some really racist kinhead came to a concert and wanted to see him. And so they decided to compromise and said, okay, they want to see Scan Love Scan so bad. Bob Marley said, oh, well, you know, this is a moment for you to make a change in your life. You know, you have mm. the enormous opportunity. They compromised and went in, no problem. And perhaps, perhaps got converted. Well, we can we can live in hope. And then maybe, maybe that was a moment where these people see the error of their ways, but but you have to try. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, you can't exclude these people. You have to try to safely mm-hmm. find a way to bring them in and present your point of view. Yeah. But then, if they don't like it, push them back out. But you have to. Indeed. You have to try to help these people because, mm-hmm. because the way I see it, these people are, it's a form of mental illness. Right. You know? I, I've arrived you know? at that conclusion too. Mm-hmm. I've arrived at that conclusion. Let me remind the viewers and the listeners that I'm in conversation with veteran singer, guitarist, frontman for the Toasters and um, record label guru, Bucket. Everybody calls him Bucket, but his parents christened him Rob Hingley. Rob, I want to, there's a song by the Toasters that I love with great passion, really and truly, and it's called um, The Stage. Ah. Oh man, and yeah. with a DJ, a DJ <laughs> came well, in you, uh, uh, you, after you, a couple of lines. Now, you, now you're hitting me with a curveball. Man. Uh, well, first I, first I have to remember what that is, and now I do. It's like, uh, what happened there? I, I think the guy is related to Jack Ruby. Uh, what mistake. it is, Am I right is uh, no, no, not exactly. I mean, uh, Jack Ruby performed on that, but uh, Jack Ruby that time. Um, that recording was um, a project done for Island Records. Yes, sir. And, and the producer was uh, was a Gaz Mail from the Trojans. Mm-hmm. You know this guy, right? And uh, and so he uh, he got a he got a project from Island Records to make a a compilation. Mm-hmm. And he approached us and said, "Do you want to be a part of this?" And we said, sure. And he said, well, the catch is, is that you're not going to be able to play your normal song. Mm. I'm going to give you a song that's out of your normal style. You're going to have to interpret it and play it your way. And say, so, okay. And so that's what happened. So 
we went in the studio with him and we had that 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 tennis tune now the stage and uh and so we had to do it in our style and so that's how that whole thing went on and there were whole other bands participating on that uh, fishbone was on that laura lincoln was on that so so it was like a it was like a little wacky compilation. So that's one of the more outside things we've done. So but that's a very eclectic thing to find there. That's a little nugget to find there. Well, and, and so the question that I asked after I heard that some, because Ronnie Davis has a version with the, with the tenors. And then someone told me that there's a, also an interpretation by the toasters and a DJ killed it. So my question then, over the years has been, why didn't the Toasters make other records like that? Am I the only one who loved that song with great passion? Well, uh, we, we, it was a challenge. And they said, can you, can you play this song in this style? It's like, not. A, and so we said, okay, well, we'll give it a shot. And that's, and that's what happened. And, uh, and I think uh, it came out as a seven inch Mm -hmm. record and the flip side is fishbone so if you can find that you're a lucky man yeah oh, probably look, has big value <laughs> look, look for that look for that on discography but but yeah it was like a wow. it was like a throwdown it's like can can you guys play outside of your style and play this <clears throat> this song was it the tenor was at the paragons version of it but anyway we, we hit it and it was uh the whole world Oh my. <laughs> yeah, I remember. It was great. Yes, sir. Yeah, what it, a great session. Yeah, I played it on my radio. I've been playing that one now, guys, from ever since I came across it, which probably over 30 odd years. Yeah. Uh, six months won't go by. So who was the DJ Jack Ruby's son, right? Am I right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You ever went on tour with him? Or yeah, we went on tour with him a lot. And uh, yeah. very mercurial, very mercurial character. A lot of energy on the stage. But uh, he had a lot of stories about his father and how his father was. Uh, uh, he paid for all the school books. His father. In the local school and everything. And when uh, the school needed a new roof, his father would pay all this kind of stuff. So oh, that's good yeah. to know. Yeah. yeah. His father was like a, not only a big producer, but a very Robin Hood type, Robin Hood type figure. You know, he'd rub in the rich and give to the poor. So. Yes, I heard. That's why he yeah. left Kingston. I went back to St. Anne's, which was good for him and good for Burning Spear. Yeah. And the wonderful production came out at uh, St. Anne's. Well, I think they're from, uh, I think they're from Ocho Rios, uh -huh. the family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is, uh, again, uh, St. Anne's. It's Ocho, isn't it Ocho Rios in St. Anne's? Yeah, yeah. All right. So I'm close. But I'm still in <laughs> touch with Jack Ruby. He's, he's uh -huh. not Where is he? So how come he's not making records? Uh, he got. He has too many children, too many, too many baby mothers, too much, too much. Which is why he should be out there making money. Yeah, for he them. should be out there. So he's doing some stuff here and there. When whenever we go up, uh, whenever we uh, go down to South Florida, normally he shows up to a show. So mm -hmm. I have to book something down there so he can come back. Yeah. Oh, what a great, what a great character he was. And the first time we met him was funny because uh, we'd gone down to. Here's a story. We'd gone down to play some big. Um, big, um, you know, college shows and weekend in uh, in in the Bahamas, mm -hmm. and it, and it got rained out, so it's a big, you know, spring spring weekend for the. So we go down, it's rained out, so we're hanging down, and we're all being paid, everything, you know, sitting down there, we can't play, and mm -hmm. some guy says, 
bucket, you gotta you gotta go down to the lobby and check out this guy who's running the karaoke in the piano bar. You gotta go check this guy out. So we go down there <laughs> to the to the piano bar, and here's Jack Ruby running running the place. And uh, so we're like, what's going on? He said, yeah, we're going to run this and whatever. And and he goes, yeah, come back to my room. I've got 200 cases of beer up there. I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, well, since the, the event got rained out, they had it all there. So I would just put it on the carton. I put all this beer back in my room. So we went up to his hotel room and he has wall-to-wall cases of beer there. So we're drinking beer and like throwing beer out the window and all this kind of stuff. And then we said, well, what do you do? And he said, oh, come on down to... So we go back down the karaoke bar and then we hired him for the toaster. So that was that was how that happened. Wow. Serendipity. Wow. Wow. Yeah, one of my favourites. One of my favourites. And then it turned out he's Jack, Ruby, Jack Ruby's son. You know, yes, Jack sir. Ruby one here. of my favourites. One of my favourites. Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. I want to go back to Moon uh, release. Uh, many, 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 many important compilations throughout the... Uh, its existence. Talk about the Southern California Skakwake and uh, Skamagedian series. I think those were two separate series, right? Yeah, Skamagedian was um, slightly later, but the the um, the Skakwake compilation was uh, released in the uh, late '80s, and that was a result of us coming to play shows uh, in. California and from 88 onwards mm. and seeing what a great selection of bands there were yes. at that time there. And uh, unbeknownst to most of us on East Coast at that time, right. because, it, you know, of course, it wasn't a national distribution system. So we were coming in to play shows uh, organized by Golden Voice mm-hmm. at uh, venues like the... Uh, the country club in Reseda with bands like uh, Let's Go Bowling, uh, with bands like uh, Dancehall Crashers and bands like Hepcat. And I'm thinking, goodness me, look at look at what's going on here with a great bunch of talent. But all through Cal- California, go up and down, down mm-hmm. San Diego, uh, bands down there. So we put out that compilation and it was a huge, huge hit and introduced a lot of those bands, I think, for the first time to international audiences. Brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wonderful. Right. So, uh, anything else you wanted to add about that? Because there were two sets of compilations, right? Well, we'd had, we'd had one compilation, uh, Rissan Vinyl, in as early as 1988. Some unknown band, some no-name, what is his name? Uh, oh, yeah, no doubt, these guys. And so uh, we we discovered that band, and we put out the first two singles for them: one on the Sky the Skyface comp, and and the next in the nineteen nineteen ninety Skyquick. So at that point, it was a huge, huge, huge scene happening mm-hmm. in California. <clears throat> yes, and it was it was separate, uh, I think, to what was going on in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Right, they had Which- their own thing bubbling up. Yes, sir. Which Jamaican legend uh, did Moonskia uh, label release albums for? Uh, Laura Lincoln. Mm-hmm. 
at the Scantlites, Tommy right. McCook. Mm -hmm. And then uh, whom else? Mm -hmm. Those three for now. There's probably a couple more, I have to think. Mm -hmm. And so when and why did Moonskia close shop? Uh, we closed in 2000. And what happened? I guess the larger was, question is why. Uh, there's a number of questions. Throughout the, the 90s, it got so big that we had to. The scene you know, or the label? Well, both. Mm. Uh, the, label, the label got too big, the scene got too big, uh, but most importantly, the, the cost of doing business had got too big. Mm. So we had to upgrade to a bigger store, we had to upgrade to bigger distribution cost. Mm -hmm. And then what happened, I think um, there was a tipping point, uh, I, th I would say 1998, where there were too many people trying to make money off the scene than was mm -hmm. possible. And then what happened, uh, a lot of independent distributors started to fail. And one of the causes of this was because of uh, buyouts in the scene. The other was because of Napster in 1998, which kind of destroyed the file sharing program. You familiar with that? Uh, which kind of destroyed um, the sharing. And so after 1998, we won't make any money. And we were faced with a decision of whether we're going to try to continue the label uh, into the face of mounting losses or stop while we're ahead and call it a day mm -hmm. and not have to continue and do something that eventually we'd be unhappy with. So unfortunately we had to close because uh, the <coughs> money dried up. Mm -hmm. So in hindsight, is there anything you would have done differently looking back now? Uh, guess what, 30 some odd years? No, no, the label? no, no yeah. Uh, so we're talking about 2000 close, right? Yeah, so I would have, uh, yeah, I would have maybe two decades. Number Maybe not expanded into the bigger store. I would maybe kept it a smaller distro. Mm -hmm. Number two, maybe I should have, you know, signed bands up to multi-record deals instead of being a little bit more of an artist co-op than we were. That was maybe a mistake. But I think um, nobody could foretell what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time where, you know, scam music got so popular that the big money people came in and really wrecked it, that was the point that I, I should have got out. So I should have got out of Scam Music in 1995, but I waited mm. too long. But in mm. any case, what I haven't, you know, Moonworkers was a great time. It's a shame that I had to close it, but, uh, but uh, I, I do it all over again. What a, what a great experience. Of course, of course. But then you, in 2002, I think you started a new lab, right? Is that Megla, how you pronounce it? Uh, Megalith, yeah. And that yeah. um, that's still that's still plugging along, but mm -hmm. there's no there's no point these days having a record label. Why is that so? Yeah, because of so download, download. Um, yeah, that and um, uh, streaming. Yeah, all this, and so Megalith is mostly an <clears throat> imprint to to keep Tosa's records in print and put a record out for bands I like here or there. But the record label, unfortunately, is uh, in a very tricky situation at the moment. But mm -hmm. we have to get rid of. We have to get rid of the vampires like Spotify, or at least get these people to who are making millions mm -hmm. and cut the artists in. And, and the way I suggest they do that 
is uh, just to be fair and say, well, look, you know, we can say that here's the amount of money coming in. Mm -hmm. You might be losing money on distributing the music, but the advertising is where the money is. So if they could just do a, a joint venture between mm -hmm. Spotify and artists on that, we'd all be happy. So that's mm -hmm. what I would suggest. Right. And, and speaking of advertising, the Toasters had some huge success with uh, music placements, including Coca-Cola, uh, Two-Tone <laughs> Army. Not just Yeah. Right. I was rattling them up, but if you could complete the thought for me. Not well, the Coca-Cola thing was interesting. They, they called up at some point and uh, said, can you write us a, um, we're looking for a, a commercial and it has to be one minute long. And it has to say, always Coca-Cola 12 times. <laughs> and, it, uh, and it has to have a, a 15 second blank spot for some guy to say, uh, Coca-Cola, buy it, it's gonna drink it, it's gonna kill you, whatever they say in his advert. And I said, yeah, okay, we can do that. So we went in the studio in New York with this guy who'd, uh, who'd actually been some big time producer of a Michael Jackson or James Brown or somebody. Mm. So you go in this big studio and we make this one minute spot and we have to have a riff and then a break and then a chorus and then a 15 minute blank spot. And so it ended up being Always Coca-Cola and then the hook. Always Coca-Cola. Always go. And then the guy saying, Yeah, buy Coca-Cola. It's gonna kill you. Don't worry. It makes your teeth fall out. Always go. So this, yeah. So that was that. And they paid us uh twenty-five thousand dollars for that. Wow. Yeah. How about your um the two-tone army? That was one so, I so, so of course, of course I did it. Yes, uh, well, of course, of course. And the Two-Tone Army, that was a song that became, um, I think, the theme for Nickelodeon. Hmm. Am I right, sir? That kids' program. Yeah, well, that's another thing that came in. I mean, um, that that uh, that show, uh, the creator, Matt, Matt Edward, had originally wanted Bad Manners to write the, the, the theme tune. But they were unavailable. So the guys from Nickelodeon, I guess, uh, Bad Manners to back down and Nickelodeon were in a spot. And they called up and said, is this, is this something you can do? And I said, what is it? They said, it's like a cartoon show for kids. I said, well, of course I'm going to do that. Show me what it is. And so uh, we went up there and they said, well, we need a, um, a, a theme tune for the show, which is called Kablam. And if you wouldn't mind, could you write us a few pieces of instrumental bumper music to go along with the recording of the show? And I said, well, how many is that? And they said, well, could you write us a, 180 pieces of music? <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, well, uh, I'm kind of on tour at the moment. And I've got another tour coming up and I'm, we're doing the Tosas record. Uh, uh, which was a hard band for dead. Would you mind if I just 
fits it in in between as I do this stuff. And they said, no, go ahead. And so what happened, as we were working up all the ideas for the Hard Bound for Dead record, I would take versions of that stuff mm-hmm. and record them and Clever. send them off to M- Kablam MTV and say, well, would you be interested in something like this? And they said, yeah, that sounds great. I said, well, I'll do a cowboy version of that and we'll do a rock and roll version of the same tune. So Two-Tone Army tune became the theme tune for that and a lot of the bumper music. So mm-hmm. that <laughs> happened at the same time as we're doing it. So it all mm-hmm. it all just came out by itself right. very naturally. Mm. How did that help the popularity of the toasters? Well, those those two distinctive uh, yeah, different projects it, in a massive way. And I didn't I didn't find out until afterwards because what happened with that is that we did it and it was this project. They said, oh, you know, his you know sign seal delivered. Here's your mm-hmm. underage piece of music. <clears throat> off you go, the bumper music. And it wasn't until afterwards and maybe even years afterwards that I understood how in, important that was because we would go around the world and, and people would say, well, you know, I came to see you tonight because I never knew the band and I don't know what the music was, but I watched this television show and you guys have played it. So I came out to see you because of that. And so that ended up being a huge portal for kids yes, to get into the music. Mm-hmm. Because of that, so yeah, what a great, what a great chance that, what a great chance mm-hmm. that was to push sky music out without yes. anybody knowing about it. Definitely, I'd be remiss not to mention Mexico before we close. Uh, the toast is larger than life in Mexico. What uh, has the uh, the experience been like playing in Mexico uh, numerous times over the decades? Tell us about the, your experiences. Well, is Mexico's you great, and uh, number one, I'd say that you know. Anybody's scared about going to Mexico, don't be scared because they're some of the best people in the world there. Um, very happy people who fucking love scam music. In fact, love any kind of underground music, mm-hmm. whatever. Huge rockabilly scene. And the scam music scene there is huge. And I have to point towards, I have to take my hat off and give respect to two guys. One who is a uh, Jesus Ariega from Chuy from uh, Inspector, that big man from Monterrey, mm-hmm. and uh, Jose Olan from How to Control Army. Uh, these guys organize these massive shows. You're talking 12, 15, 20,000 people at these festivals. And uh, Mexico, it's great. I've, I would go down there. I would go down there any chance I got. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we've been a little bit prohibited from from COVID, but right. I'm hoping that uh, this next year we can take it mm-hmm. up. But, right. the, but the Mexicans love it, love it. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest scam masses out there at yes, the moment. Yes, the I've been down here numerous times, so I can't speak. Mm. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, we have some questions from our fans, so I'm going to invite uh, producer and good friend, Eric Kohler, to oh, wow. uh, join the conversation. Great to see he you He has some again. questions for you, Bucket. <laughs> We, we, know, uh, we know Eric from a little while back. We've been, yes. we've been in contact from the 90s. That's right. And for, I guess for the sake of the viewers and listeners, um, Rather, we talked about it earlier, but I do want to thank you on, on camera here officially. Uh, when, when Reggae Nucleus magazine was around, Moon, <clears throat> Moon Records played such a big role in you know, sending us product that we would 
review and, and, and provide some content. Well, like, like I said to Junior earlier, you were, you were on our A list of uh, promotional outlets for underground underground sources. Mm -hmm. And that was always the people we looked at, was not mainstream people who would maybe hit or miss. We looked for people like you who were like a, a nucleus, you know, <laughs> like a guy, a go to guy in that scene there that would say, well, if we send this music to this guy, he's not going to waste it. Mm -hmm. He's not gonna. He's not gonna take these releases down to the local music store and sell them. He's gonna keep it, and he's gonna review it in his magazine. He's gonna play at his DJ show, yep. where he goes to the DJ shows, and and so you were, you were you were the prototype of the guy we were looking at mm. to pitch this music to, and look yeah. here you are, forty years later. So, <laughs> so, so yes, sir, as it yes, turns yes, out, yes, we were, we were right. You we, picked, we picked the right guy. Yeah, yes. no, the, the 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 so many of the albums I played also on the, my feeling the vibes college radio show and, and yeah exactly uh, yeah see yeah, you, no, you, you were multitasking you were multitasking you didn't just have the college radio show you had the fanzine you had the magazine yep. Yep. you maybe you going out DJing at clubs you were precisely the guy yeah. we wanted to float this to because that's where we saw. The, the the water table of this music being it's not right. not to yeah. shoot it up to people not try to shoot too high not to shoot too low but get it to people who are going to infiltrate it out to the people they knew that believed in it and build it up that way like yeah. in a grass in a grassroots way and that was that was the huge success of Moon Records yeah. we understood that and we didn't we didn't try to go too big we went to people who would take the music out and, and share it and create a platform and reach out to the more interested people. And look what happened. No, no, it's, 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 yeah. it's so true. And, and, and along those lines, um, a few questions from, from, uh, from fans. So two of them about moon, two about toaster. So, so one of them, not to put you on the spot, but, but, but to put you on the spot, um, if you had to name check a few bands that were really synonymous with moon and that really, you know, help the label and at the same time, the label helped them um, just for the sake of, of our viewers and listeners, who, who would be some of those bands? Well, you'd have to, you'd have to give me a time period because it was a little bit different from what time period of when you're talking about. I yeah. mean, there was, um, there was a, a mid eighties time where it was like primarily New York city. based right. acts. Sure. But from 1988 on where we released bands, and I would say the um, the fulcrum there would be Let's Go Bowling, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which, which was which was the band, the collaboration, which really, you know, made us a a national label and 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 turned a lot of bands onto us. And working with them um, showed a lot of the West Coast bands that we were the label that could do stuff for them. But I think Let's Go Bowling, that was a mm -hmm fantastic man and and yeah. why they didn't go further than they did i don't really understand well i actually do understand a bit of it I've, i think they were unfortunate to lose their lead singer to a car accident and that right. mm -hmm. that really put him back but what a fantastic band that was yeah. and i thought they were leading the charge um for west coast bands at that time in 88 when we played with them first and so uh them uh, another band I would say was uh, would have been the Scofflaws on the mm -hmm. East Coast. Yep. And then um, and then who else? Um, 
the other bands would have come later and I would I would have said bands like Beth Scaffolds and the Bite Aces and sure, M- sure. Mustard Plug. Yeah. But I think from early days, I think Let's Go Bowling and the Scott Floors would have been okay. the two bands mm-hmm. that I would push out. <clears throat> right, right. Um, next question comes from somebody who you know, um, although I don't think, according to, to him, you've not never met in person, but Lewis King Steady Beat Korea from Steady Beat Recordings out here. I've never, uh, I've never met him, but yeah, but we've, uh, we, yeah, we've, we've exchanged a lot of emails and what, and, a, what a great label that has been over the years. Yes. And I have maximum respect for that. Maximum respect for Louis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you worked together a little bit on the second um, Scott Quake compilation. Yeah. Um, but his question was, and you touched on this earlier, but, and, and obviously this hits home for him because he is a label owner, but he wanted to know exactly how you felt the moment you decided or had to make the unfortunate decision to close down Moon. But like, like how, to describe how you were feeling because it's, to him, it would have been well, like- Well, I mean, decision, yeah. obviously it was a very <laughs> emotional decision, but mm-hmm. the decision um, ultimately couldn't be based on emotion or what I wanted to do. It was, it was based on, on finances and, and what happened at that time in uh, between 1990, six really which is when it started and 2000 was the the collapse of the independent right uh, distri- distribution system in the usa and uh part of that was because a lot of uh smaller companies like Greenworld uh or rots records mm-hmm. or or whomever had gone out of business and and taken a lot of the money um which was not huge amounts of money, but for an indie label was a large amount of money. So we had a lot of uh, independent record failures. And a lot of that had been caused by the fact that bigger players like Sony and like EMI had been coming into the market and buying up um, distributors. Um, So the final nail in the coffin for us was when uh, Caroline, who was at that point was our primary distributor and one mm-hmm. of the few left after the failures. Yeah. Um, EMI bought them and said, well, what's going to happen is we're going to draw a line and anybody who's earning less than this amount of money every year, which was like $2 million it was, uh, you're going to have to can them. Mm. And so what happened uh, without any, with any warning, we were told it's like, oh, you're, we're not distributing you anymore, and we're sending you all your product back, oh. including half a million dollars worth of product that we just shipped you last week. Mm-hmm. And so we were got cut off. Uh, what happened was we had a tractor trailer full of product showed up outside our store one day and dumped it off in the street. And I was like, what are we going to do now? Mm-hmm. We had yeah. no... We had no alternative but to say we had to stop. Sure. And yeah. at the same time as they're dumping our product, they'd ordered a quarter of a million dollars worth of other titles. So it was it was crazy. Wow. So at that point I said we can't deal with yeah, this. No, right. And yeah. so the 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 choice there was to, well, what do we do now? Like struggle forward for the next three, five, seven years with no cash flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, under a dubious outlook because of all the 
uh, file sharing and, and downloads going on. So I'd say, yeah, you know, it's such an interesting, challenging time. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, I have to be a grown up and say it's not possible to go forward. So we had to stop while we're ahead and say, we're going to call it a day right here. Cut, cut your losses. Yeah. Pay, yeah. Pay, off, pay off as many people as possible, which didn't include Caroline, which didn't include the landlord. And I told the vans, I was like, dude, if you've got a van, come here now and fill it up with stuff and take it away. Uh, and that's how, that's how Moon Rug was. Yeah. Vans uh, yeah, were showing up trucks and we were like, <laughs> it's like that last, that last helicopter off the, off the embassy in Vietnam. It's like that. But it was like uh, market forces, like, man, how, uh, and it's incredible how, after having been in business uh, 25 years for some distributors, the minute you, you, uh, they don't think you can pay them a penny, they mm -hmm. won't help. Them. Yeah. So, right. The with that is uh, there's no such thing as a friend in the music business. Mm -hmm. it's, it's what have you done for me lately? But, well, wasn't Cla but Carolina was based in England, right? Yeah, originally. Oh, okay. And, and they were, they were, Offshot of Virgin. Yeah, and they were. Um, yeah, they were uh, the biggest indie distributor in the yeah. USA. Oh, okay, that, that I time, didn't know. In, in nineteen in two thousand, yeah. Ah, I didn't know that. Mm. And because uh, IRD relativity had been bought by Sony, mm -hmm. and Sony right. wanted interest in us because they thought Sky Music wasn't worth anything. Mm -hmm. All these people. Got it wrong by ten years. Right. They should they should have stuck it out ten years. Right. And so it was a total market force. So I had to make an economic decision and say, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to sit here and maybe lose my shirt and everybody else's shirt and not be assured at the end of it we'll have a label, which we mm -hmm. wouldn't have done. As mm. it turned out, it was the right decision to stop because what happened with the file sharing and Napster and all the stuff and Spotify, everything. And, but it was, um, you know, we were in too exposed a position. Yeah. Financially. Yeah, understandable. Mm -hmm. um, two more questions. One comes from uh, uh, Ritmo Del Amo Radio. Uh, the question was, if you can take your memory bank back to 1993, do you have any memories of uh, the show in Caracas, Venezuela? I don't know if, if in 93, if that might have been your first time down there or not, but any memories of, of, uh, of maybe playing uh, Venezuela? Well, no, not only do I have a good memory, I also have a recording of that show. Okay, mm -hmm. well, there we go. <laughs> Very we, have a, we have a limited edition uh, live in Caracas. Oh, okay. All right. CD, which I think there's 500 copies of it floating around. Wow. And we went down there with De Sordon Publico as our hosts. Yes, okay. And what a fantastic time. We came in, uh, it was the same week they had the coup. So we were riding around in our tour, button, tour van and there was all Jeeps, army guys with guns. I say, well, wow. this is our escort of these, of the bouncers. Who, who's these guys? What a fantastic show. But I would also give a shout out this time to Radio Pirata, which is uh, the guys from De Sordon Publico, Horace and Caplis. Okay. So please, uh, please check into them and uh, yeah. check them out. They're still going. So yeah, <laughs> what a That's great amazing. time! Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to search for that recording. Um, mm -hmm. And and the last question is: so you going strong as as 
clearly the, the constant member of, of and, and frontman and leader of the Toasters, but what continues to motivate you to, to, to stay on the road and to, to record and, and to keep it, keep so active? Well, number one, I, I don't want to get a job. So if I'm going to earn money, I may as well, do, I may as well be doing this. I'm going to kind of stay on the outside of society because I don't like society that much. And I'm not sure how much it likes me. But I mean, uh, you know, at this point, who's going to hire me? I'm 65 <laughs> years old. Who's going to hire this guy? They're going to, I go to a job interview. They say, what can you do? I say, well, I can do everything. You know, I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> a jack of all trades and a master of none. Who's going to hire me? So, number one, I have to keep doing this. But I mean, I, you know, I still love doing this. I can't wait for this COVID nonsense to be over. For our politicians to get their shit together mm -hmm. finally, yeah. and and the public to, you know, get together and and reach a and reach a, a public health massive, which we haven't done yet. People have yes. to educate themselves a little bit and get together and say, well, the only people going to fix this is going to be ourselves. So get together, true. get your vaccination, and and uh, let's get this going and get society back to normal. If we yeah. leave it up to the politician, we're still going to be sticking our finger up our ass in three years' time, looking to see what happened. So, yeah. um, but having said that, we're going to have some tour dates. Yeah, very exciting. December. I'm yeah, looking forward to seeing you there and absolutely. buy me a drink for all this. Yes, oh, yes. Sir. Red Striper. The dry throat now. I'm going to need, going to need a couple of drinks to tune in. We will come out. We'll come out here for sure. Yes. So, any, any closing thoughts, Bucket? Well, thanks. You know, first of all, thanks a lot for interviewing me. I think it's very interesting to go back to the choice questions you had. It was very refreshing because not a lot of people want to focus on what was going on in that, uh, for me, a key period of sky music, which was mm. 1988 <clears throat> uh, to 1993, mm -hmm. uh, in which the, the West Coast and the LA sky scene in particular, uh, involving bands like Hepcat, yeah. Uh, but also bands like Jump With Joey, who a lot yes, of people yes. don't talk about, but who was a precursor there. Yes, um, A lot of bands off the California Scarquake CD that I would point people towards, like mm -hmm. great, great, great <clears throat> selection, of, selection of bands. And um, what's the name of the band from, uh, uh, they get out of uh, San Diego? Um, I didn't know for you're not talking about on, Big Mountain. Only, only know Big Mountain. That no, uh, unsteady. Not, not, oh, not donkey. oh, after Donkey after, Show, Donkey Show, sure. Yeah, no, hey. this is after Donkey Show, yeah. Well, Donkey Show, of course, was Dave Hilliard, who's kind right. of been a, Dave who's Hilliard kind of been like a lodestar. Yeah, Slackers, so, yeah, 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 Dave Hilliard. So I, I'll give a big shout out to Dave Hilliard. Yes. Um. <clears throat> so, so yeah. So I think uh, that period of sky music, 1988 to 1993. Uh, not just in the West Coast, but on the East Coast, but what's happening in America generally, in the yeah. heartland. And I'm also yeah. including towns like Chicago and yeah. St. Louis and Midwest, and Florida. for sure. Yeah. So, that, so that was a key time. I think what happened before that in the early 80s was things going on in New York uh, with the Tosas and, and the West Coast with a band. I wanted to, can you see my Yes, the Untouchables. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to. Oh, there we go. LA's. Yeah, I wonder the record. I wonder these guys. Yeah. Well, I first saw in England, but we moved to America. So wow. yeah. <clears throat> I saw them. They were now signed to Stiff Records. So big shout out to the Untouchables, mm -hmm. who were maybe not a scar band, but they were seminal to 
provided that. And their 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 first album came out the same year that yours and the Fish Bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we just played with them like last year too. So good yeah. to see them. Yeah, we we, so we yeah. interviewed and talked to Jerry uh, last year. So yeah. So all us old guys uh, were doing that, but I think what came after in that um, in that second wave of uh, American ska between 1988 and 1993 was really seminal. Mm -hmm. And uh, a, a big band, I would say, um, Gangster Fun mm -hmm. out of Detroit, Michigan. Yep. There's a big, yep. a big band right now. So a lot of stuff going on. So thank you. Thanks a lot for pointing that out, Junior. Mm -hmm. Yes, Bucket. Yes, yeah. man. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. been a pleasure talking to you. Yes, yeah, sir. I, I want you to just save your voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed listening <laughs> off into the waves. But, uh, yeah, Bucket, thank you for everything, nice, for <laughs> your contribution. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you are, without a doubt, um, such a key figure, mm -hmm. one, of, one of the most important in, in, the, in the ska. You know, I don't always like to use the word ska revival, but that's, you know, and keeping the ska music alive. So kudos <laughs> to you. I, know, I, know, I never, I reject the term revival because it never went away. That's true. Absolutely. You know, love that. In yes. order to revive something, it has to be dead. And oh, Scam was, yeah. was never dead. You know? I've never heard it put so bluntly. Yeah. I love that. No, very true. Very true. <laughs> well, we'll here's what I said. It's like yeah. scam music, music is going along, going along, going along. Now and again, it puts its head up so people can see it. Yeah. Yeah. Gets it and then comes back down. Yeah. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah, so right. when people say revival, true. say, dude, that's a disrespect because... For something to be revived, it has to be dead first. And Sky wow. has mm -hmm. never been dead and will never be dead. Yes, sir. What a, what it's, a, a high, it's a hard <coughs> band for dead. That's right. <laughs> On that note, that's a perfect way to end this. Rob, thank you so much, Junior. Thank yeah. you. Yes, sir. Thank you, well, thank you, bucket, thank you. bucket, want to thank you again, man. And I want to remind our viewers and listeners that a guest has been um, veteran singer, guitarist, frontman for the Toasters and record label guru. We know him as Bucket Worldwide, but his parents register him as uh, Rob Inkley. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, guys. Taking Bye. time out of your busy schedule, go on 23rd. And I want to remind our viewers and listeners, again, to please follow us at History of NSK Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our Facebook group. This series produced by my good friend right here to my left, Eric Kola, for Rockery Radio. Again, please follow us at Rockery underscore radio on Instagram for fresh rock rhythm and soul and jamaican music inspired my daily spotify playlist the man is very busy extremely busy all done by eric Cole and his <laughs> partner uh sean again i'm junior francis uh eric and thank bucket, you thanks thank you junior thank you bucket have a great night take care <laughs>